calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You are listening to episode 20 of Double Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 39, Breakall Orbital, 2358, September 10th. At 11.40, I reported to the office to take the watch. Burnside was there and grunted when I relieved him. I don't think he even realized I wasn't Arletta. He just walked out of the office and headed into the ship. Ula must have been watching the passageway because she came in as soon as he was gone. Well, this is going to be different, she said with a smile. It's been ever so long since I stood watch with anybody but Ms. Noveasar. Well, I hope it won't be too different, I said. It's still portside OOD watch, and if we're lucky, nothing will happen. She laughed. Well, I can study then. Is it okay if I study here? Sure, I told her. I'm not very good company, but you're welcome to sit here with me if you like. I should go see how Mr. Betts is doing before I get too settled, but be my guest. She sat in her customary side chair and pulled out her tablet. I went to check on the brow watch and found him going over the logs from overnight. Any problems, Mr. Betts? I asked. He smiled when he looked up. No, sir. I was just looking to see who came in really late. I chuckled. One must find one's amusement wherever possible on the brow watch, eh, Mr. Betts? Yes, sir, he agreed. After a moment, he added, Sir, can I ask... Did we get a new cook? Not that I know of. Why? He lifted his nose and sniffed delicately. Whenever I open the lock, I get the scent of food that wafts out. Do you smell it? I focused, and sure enough, the delicate fish and the robust oregano and basil aromas floated at just the edges of my awareness. Oh, yes, I said. That would be Mr. Voorhees. He picked up some fresh herbs and spices this morning after breakfast. I hope it's almost time for lunch, he said with feeling. That smells wonderful. We shared a laugh and a knowing grimace over the quality of the fare aboard the billy. Well, I just wanted to stop by, I said. Ms. Nard is in the office, but I suspect she'll be relieving you for lunch soon. Thanks for checking on me, sir, he said with a grin. And he added, you're not going to try to add me to your harem, are you, sir? I have no plans in that regard, Mr. Betts, I told him seriously. You'll be the first to know if I change my mind. Your consideration is very much appreciated, sir, he said. Miss Jackson speaks highly of you. That woman is dangerous, Mr. Betts. You mark my words. She likes you too, sir, he said, and I headed back into the ship. Twelve on, twelve off for an import watch schedule is hard. Logically, I knew I was trading days off, and in reality I'd be getting a 36-stand break back from it. I probably wouldn't be standing another OOD watch until we got back to Diurnia. 
That small stub of watch just before we got underway hardly counted. Still, the ship's office was feeling pretty small by the time I got back to it. On the other hand, I got a new group of people to work with, and I already knew Ms. Nart was a lively companion. Mr. Bett certainly seemed to be cut from the same cloth. Moreover, we were about to try Mr. Voorhees's newest culinary masterpieces. I stopped at the office and stuck my head in. Ms. Nart, I believe it's time for lunch, I called. She smiled and closed her tablet. I hope so, Sar. That smell has had me drooling for the last stand. Apparently, we weren't the only ones who'd noticed because there was a larger-than-normal crowd waiting for the buffet to be set up. The obligatory cold meats and cheese platter was already in place along with a basket of breads and rolls. When the clock struck noon, Ms. Davies brought out the fish soup and slipped a large serving dish into a deep well warmer. Mr. Voorhees brought out a large baking dish of meat and pasta and put that in a large chafing dish with a roll-back cover. They added a platter of cookies on the end of the buffet and signaled us to begin. I waited for the watchstanders to fill their trays and then got in line with the rest of the crew. The soup was a lovely clear broth with some flakes of whitefish and small cubes of potato. Green onions floated on the surface and the tarragon added a delicate anise flavor to the bouquet coming off the top of the pot. The pasta was baked with a meat and tomato sauce that, when seasoned with basil, oregano, and garlic, became something close to ambrosia. I noted that nobody was eating the cold meats and cheeses, but several were adding crusty rolls to their trays. I didn't linger in the line, but took a portion and moved on. I took a seat at a table to the side and invited Ms. Nart to join me. Her eyes were dancing as she placed the tray on the table and leaned over to savor the aroma of the food. I looked up in time to see Freddy come under the mess deck, assess the situation, and get into line herself. She saw me looking and waved while she waited for her turn at the soup. I nodded to the seat beside me, and she smiled broadly. It wasn't a crowd as mess deck meals go, but with almost 15 people eating lunch, it might have been a record for import meals on the billy. Freddy came over and sat with Ula and me. Ishmael, this is a marvelous idea. I meant to tell you before. With so few people aboard, it's silly for us to eat in the wardroom. This is so much more festive, she said with a smile. Ms. Nair was working methodically through her soup and seemed to be enjoying it greatly. How did he do this, Sar? she asked. This is wonderful. I took a sip and tested the flavors. If I had to guess, Miss Nart, I'd say he used a normal fish-based stock, added a bit of poached muda and some diced potatoes, and seasoned it with a bit of salt and pepper and a hint of tarragon to give it a little bite. She blinked at me. That was a guess, Sar. I shrugged. I've some knowledge in the culinary arts, I told her. I'll bet you can cook, too, she said, returning to her tray and moving on to the pasta bake. Freddy leaned in on the other side. You need to tell me how you did this, she said softly. Did what? I asked back, just as softly. This? She nodded at the tray. I didn't do anything, I said quietly. I just helped Mr. Voorhees realize that being a baker is one thing and being a chef is another, but really, they have a lot of things in common. And you took him out to buy the spices, she said, with a shrewd look in my face. Well, yeah, I admitted. I had a few minutes this morning. She chuckled. A few minutes before you had to cover our letters watch. Ula finished her tray and had the tomato sauce on her nose. She giggled and wiped it off. I have to go relieve Arnie Sars, she said. He's not going to believe it. With that, she scooted off, taking her dirty tray with her and leaving us alone at the table. You know that David is going to punish you for this, don't you? She asked as she broke open one of the crusty rolls. Yes, I said, I suspect so. It's harder to terrorize a motivated crew. Not only that, she said. You're showing the crew that officers are people. I looked at her. You think so? I asked. She nodded and addressed her soup again. Yes, and by being people, officers aren't scary. 
We're not? I asked. I always found officers to be very scary. Alice Chagone scared me silly. Freddy got a funny half-smile on her face. Yes, well, she also got you into the academy. Point taken, I agreed, and finished off the last of the pasta. Did you ever meet Benjamin Maxwell? I asked. Oh, yes, she said. Do they still scare the greenies with the story that he's some kind of super spy and he moves mechanically like that so he doesn't inadvertently kill anybody? I laughed. Well, I don't know about still, but they did to me. Why? It's a pretty effective story, I told her. The true ones always are more effective, she said with a little smile. You mean, I asked. I found I couldn't finish the question. Oh, yes. Brilliant man. Kind, gentle, caring, and absolutely deadly. Somebody you need to have on your side. I found myself staring and pulled my eyes back in. How do you know him, I asked, when I could get my tongue wrapped around the thought again. He was number seven, she said softly. There was a kind of dreamy smile in her face. She saw me looking at her, and for the first time since I'd known her, she giggled. What? You didn't have fun at the academy, she asked. Nobody there you'd look back on when you get to be my age and think, Marar, about. You got me on that one, I told her with a warm smile. We sat there having coffee and watching the crew enjoy dinner. It was very nice. So tell me, why didn't you go for captain, I asked finally. Why, isn't cargo first important enough? She asked with a twinkle in her eye. I like being cargo first. I shook my head. No, it's not that. It's just... I paused, trying to put my thoughts together. You know I'm not a spacer. She nodded, holding her cup in both hands, her elbows on the table and letting the warm moisture waft up and over her nose. Well, when I started noticing people around the orbitals and such, I always thought that when you look at a captain, you know they're a captain. You don't need the uniform. You can just tell. She turned her head in my direction with a thoughtful frown. Interesting, but how does that relate? Well, I never met a captain who didn't look it, until I got on the billy and met Captain Rossett. He's the least captainly person I think I've ever seen. Makes me wonder if there are a lot of people I thought were accountants and dentists who are really clipper captains, I confessed. She laughed and said, No, I think you're right. He's not got what they used to call command presence in any great amount. Yes, well... Remember that night when we had the problem with Penny? You headed down the passageway hell-bent for leather, and I watched you going, thinking, Clipper Captain. I glanced at her, and she was staring into space. So I wondered why you never, you know, went for Captain. My voice sort of trailed off at the end. Her eyes were totally unfocused, and she was a million miles away for just a few heartbeats before she smiled at me, and I mean really smiled, and it was wonderful. She leaned closer to me and said, I did. The shock must have shown on my face because she gave me a little shushing expression. But, I started to ask. A look from her quelled my voice, but not my curiosity. I sat for the test, but I never wanted command. I felt I owed it to Alice to go as far as I could, but I like my little cargo world. I don't know that I actually have the, whatever it is, confidence maybe. She sipped her coffee thoughtfully, and I could tell she was lost in thought again. I turned back to my tray, embarrassed that I'd made assumptions. Not sorry that I'd asked, but still a bit regretful. From beside me, she asked, So, you thought I looked like a captain? I turned and looked into those deep green eyes, and they were laughing. Yeah, I said, and I could feel my own eyes laughing back. Yeah, I did.
Chapter 40 Break All Orbital 2358 September 10th After lunch I settled into the office with a cup of coffee and a small pile of cookies. Ula joined me and worked on her able spacer exam questions. About 1500 David Burnside stuck his head in the door. This isn't your watch. Where's Arletta? He growled. We traded, I told him calmly. She'll relieve me at midnight and take the midwatch with my section. Why? He barked. Because otherwise I'd stand 24 stand straight, and it seemed only fair, hence the term trade, I believe, I told him. Ula was trying to crawl into her tablet. No, you little wise... He stopped and seemed to notice Ula for the first time. He took a deep breath. Why have you swapped? He asked, a bit more civilly. She had an all-day appointment and couldn't get it changed to tomorrow, I told him. What kind of appointment? He asked. I don't know. She didn't tell me. I shrugged helplessly. He stood there for a few heartbeats, trying to decide if I really did know, but decided against it. Instead, he turned to Ula. So, Miss Nard, he said in a slimy voice. I knew the next bit was going to be ugly. Is he trying to add you to his harem now? Ula just smiled most charmingly at him. Oh, no, sir, she said in that wispy little girl voice that she used to devastating effect. Burnside snorted a kind of derisive what-do-you-expect snort. Then she added, I've been a member of Mr. Wong's harem since almost the beginning, sir. She turned and looked adoringly at me. Burnside turned a bit red under the ears and said through clenched teeth like he was trying not to explode, I'm going ashore. I'll be back before my watch. Ula continued to gaze winningly at me. Okay, Miss Nard, he's gone, I said. You can knock off the act now. In a voice that was definitely not her wispy little girl voice, she answered, Who's acting? She let a saucy little pause stretch out before adding a throaty, Sar. I looked at her and caught the glimmer in her eyes. You've been associating with Miss Dang, haven't you? I accused her. Yes, sir, she said promptly and proudly. She's teaching me everything she knows. I shuddered dramatically. I fear for the integrity of the crew, Miss Nart. This crew, sir? she asked, as if taken aback by the very idea. Integrity? Point taken, Miss Nart. Point taken, I said with a small laugh. Now, how are you coming on that able spacer exam? Party pooper, she muttered into her tablet, but I could see her grin. We settled down to wait for dinner to see how Mr. Voorhees would make out in his second attempt. So far, there hadn't been much in the way of telltale aromas, but it was still early. At 17.30, Arletta came back aboard. She stopped at the door to the office and looked in. She looked tired but jubilant, as if she'd been wrestling all day but had emerged victorious at the end of the day. "'Where's Ula?' she asked with a smile. "'Going to get coffee for Arnie,' I said. "'You look tired. "'I'm exhausted, but I need to tell somebody.' She practically jittered with excitement. First maid exam was today. "'I passed.' I could feel my face splitting in a grin. That's fantastic, I told her. Congratulations. I'm going to go grab a shower and get some sleep. I ate on the way back, but I need to go lay down. Oh, we're under control here. Go. Tell me about it when you relieve me, I told her. She practically skipped down the passageway, heading for her stateroom. I was still smiling when Ula came back. She looked at me suspiciously, but didn't say anything. We went to dinner and enjoyed a lovely pork roast that had been crusted with a savory rub. I recognized some of them, but obviously Mr. Voorhees was experimenting on his own to good effect. There was a nice chicken soup, flavored with sage and basil, and some lovely potatoes with parsley. It was delicious. The rest of the evening was quiet. Freddie and Mel came back from their dinner ashore around 2200, both looking very striking in tailored pantsuits. 
Mal in a deep cranberry, and Freddy in a burnt orange. They were a bit giddy as they headed to their staterooms, but who was I to gainsay them? I was actually a little jealous. It had been a long, long time since I'd gone out with a wingman, and nothing planned. By the time 2345 rolled around, I was more than ready to get off watch. We gathered in the office and went through the watch change ritual pretty quickly. After the two messengers went off the bed and the mess deck as appropriate, we had a few ticks to talk. Long, nasty test, hard chairs, she said with a grin, but I did it. You're ready to move on up, I said, congratulating her. I want to go celebrate, she said. Burnside has the watch tomorrow. You want to go out and party with me? You and me, I asked, a little bit unnerved. Sure. Well, I was thinking of asking Freddie and Mel, too, she said. Excellent choices, I admitted. Where do you want to go? She shook her head. I have no idea. I expect to spend some time looking up nice restaurants overnight. Burnside relieves me at noon, and then I can grab a few stands sleep before we go out at, say, 1900? Good plan, I told her. Now, I need to get some sleep. Sleep well, Ishmael, she said, and thanks. Twelve and twelve is a sucky schedule, so thanks. I shrugged it off and stifled a yawn with my arm. You're welcome. Somehow I got back to my stateroom and into my bunk. I don't remember getting out of my ship suit, even. All I remember is the cool sheets on my arms and legs and the soft pillow on my cheek. It had been a long, long day, and I fell into a deep pool of sleep. What is it about the sound of running water that it sets up a sympathetic resonance with my bladder? The familiar pressure pushed me up from a lovely dream and over the threshold into consciousness. I could hear the shower running in the head and realized that Arletta must have gotten off watch. The thought of her wet and slippery in the shower was deliciously agonizing, and I hoped she wasn't going to be too long because that running water was interfering with my more pleasant mental muzziness. She was quick, and in a matter of a few ticks, I heard her close the door on her side of the head. I grabbed the shower while it was still warm, and in less than ten ticks, I was in my civvies and heading for the lock. Other than the buying trip for Voorhees, I hadn't been off the ship since we left Diurnia, and I was more than ready for a good walkabout. I headed around the dock toward the lift. The icy coldness of the dock air always felt good after being locked aboard for a few weeks. Even the faint tang of hydraulic fluid and ozone smelt good. The warm jacket provided plenty of protection for the short time I was going to be on the docks, and it felt good to stretch my legs out after twelve weeks in a can. When I got to the lift, I had to make a choice. Food was my first order of business, and I wanted breakfast. It had just gone 12.30, and I still had about six stands before I needed to meet Arletta for her first mate celebration. I punched O2 and dropped down to the spacer areas. I was looking for something particular, and I was pretty sure I knew where to find it. It didn't really matter what time you went to the O2 deck, and it didn't matter what orbital you were on. There was always something happening. I followed the passage to port and walked around the station, letting my nose lead me. I didn't have to go too far before the aroma of coffee and bacon led me to a hole in the wall tucked between two bars. A sign on the door said, Cackleberries. The place was exactly what I was looking for, chromed, clean, and with red-tinted table and countertops. Round-bellied coffee pots were lined up behind the counter, and a pass-through gave access to the kitchen behind. There were a few people scattered at the tables and a half-dozen spacers lined up at the bar stools at the counter. I threw a leg over an empty stool and snagged the menu from the small chrome holder at the back. The woman behind the counter came over, slid a heavy mug in front of me, and held up one of the fat-bellied pots with a look that asked the question. I nodded my answer, and she poured expertly, leaving just a bit of room for milk, and turned to slip the pot back onto the warmer behind her. "'You know what you want?' she asked with a practiced smile. I scanned the menu and said, "'Yeah, three eggs over easy, potatoes, three rashers, and two slices of wheat toast.' 
She scribbled onto her pad and slapped the order onto the pass-through before I'd even drawn my breath back. Be right up, hon, she said, and went to warm the cups down the counter. For all that I really did love Cookie's omelets back on the Lois, this breakfast was a tie to my childhood back on Neris. Every Sunday, my mother and I would hit a place at Nerisport. She'd have blueberry pancakes and I'd have sloppy eggs and bacon. Joanne's Kitchen, that was the name of it. She startled me when she skidded the plate expertly in front of me with a grin and an expert splashed atop my cup. I took a deep breath, grabbed a fork, and lost myself in velvety yolk, crunchy bacon, perfectly brown potatoes, and buttery wheat toast. It was wonderful. And it was gone. I looked and the plate was down to glaze with just the faintest smear of egg across one side. There was still a half a slab of toast, so I leaned back and nibbled the toast slowly. Long run, huh? The server asked with a grin. I took a deep breath and said, Yeah. I don't feel bad. Happens ten times a day here, she said with a wink. You'd be surprised. I sat there thinking about going for another round, but decided I'd let this one actually hit my stomach before I tossed more in behind it. The coffee was good and the toast was excellent. It didn't last very long and I drained my cup, too. She handed me the tab, I added a hefty tip, and punched my thumb onto the pay button. That was great, I told her. I expect I'll be back. She gave me a lopsided grin. You do that, hun. Bring your friends. By the time I was up off the stool, the dishes were gone and the counter was clean. I stepped out into the main passage and realized that the smell of bacon was stronger outside than in. I chuckled. Clever, but I couldn't help but think of what it was doing to the scrubbers. On second thought, as I watched the press of bodies and took in the various aromas around me, maybe it wasn't such an additional load on the scrubbers after all. I let the swirl of people pull me along. It was a good time to check out the local stomping grounds. I didn't have anything in particular that I wanted to do, but when the time came that it did, it would be good to know what was there. Somewhere under me, I knew there were residence decks where people who worked on the station found living quarters, along with transient hotels for crew caught between ships. On a confederated planet, you couldn't get deported for not having a job, but you could be left homeless and starving if you didn't buy food or shelter. It was an interesting juxtaposition. I'd made it almost all the way around the station by the time I found the pub. It was, predictably, to port of the lift, and the main dance club was to starboard. I also located a couple of interesting shops that sold clothing, entertainment cubes, and foodstuffs. Not restaurants, but more like grocery stores. And that got me thinking about Cookie and Henri Roubaillet, and I found that I missed my old life on the Lois McKendrick so bad it took my breath away for just a few heartbeats. I went into the pub, was called The Corner, and took a seat at the bar. The barkeep was an older man with close-cropped beard with a lot of gray in it on his chin and no hair at all on his pate, and a pair of startlingly green eyes in the middle. "'What's your pleasure, then?' he asked by way of welcome. "'Something in a light ale. Local, please,' I asked. "'I'm not fussy,' I added with a smile. He grinned and pulled a short pint full of a lovely-colored ale and placed it on a coaster in front of me. "'Try that, then, bucko,' he said, "'and tell me how you like it.' I took a sip, and it was just the ticket. I realized that I'd been walking around the station for over a stand, and I was thirstier than I realized.' Very nice, I told him. Local hops and malt, he said, and everyday ale for midday whistle wedding, long on flavor, short on kick. I savored another sip and asked, and what is this miracle of the brewer's art called, in case I'd like to order some more? He grinned. We call that one midday whistle wetter. I blinked at him, trying to judge if he was having me on. He pointed to a chalked-up sign behind the bar, and sure enough, there was midday whistle wetter ale. 
along with a Wonder Wheat and one named Call-It-A-Day Working Man's Porter. The names drew a chuckle out of me, almost despite myself. Cute names, I said at last. Ah, well, too often people are tied up in the wood when they're really looking at the wind, don't you know? He nodded at the sign. There's a few snobby people who want a particular kind of brew. Golden malt, five hops, dragon piss, or some such. But most folks come in for a pint because it's time for a brew. Middle of the day, end of the day. Sometimes just because. I make it easy for him by naming the beer after the occasion. I chuckled. Worked for me, I said, giving the man his due. Works for most, he said. Down here, if you come in my pub, you're usually looking for someplace quiet, off the ship and away from the crowd. And you drink a beer as a rental on the stool. He shrugged as it was all very obvious, and I suppose it was. I settled out to drink. I wasn't out of the woods in spite of the past few days. I knew that David Burnside was not going to go away. I was relatively certain that he'd try something more dramatic than a punch in the gut. The ship was slipping out of his grip. His plaything had been taken away. The crew was acting more like a crew and less like a herd of wounded rabbits. With the food, if not up to cookie standards, at least better than it was, there was going to be one more thing for David Burnside to blame me for. Sooner or later, I knew he was going to have to slap me down. I did not look forward to that at all. The beer was a good sipping beer, and the barkeep, his name tag read Brian, knew how to stand back while a man was pondering in his beer. He offered a second when I got down to the bottom of my first, but by then I needed to get moving. I thumbed the tab and used the facilities before heading back out to the main passage. I was coming up on 1600, and I still had no idea about what to do when I got back underway. My feet carried me idly around, closing the circle to return me to the lift. I stopped once and looked in a shop's grated and reinforced window. Inside were weapons. Contact weapons, projectile throwers, blades, lots of blades, billy clubs and cautious. I stood there looking at them for maybe three full ticks before I realized what I was doing. I sighed and took a deep breath, closing my eyes. I couldn't believe they'd pushed me this far. I turned on my heel and walked away. Here, there be dragons, I thought. And those dragons will bite you in the butt. Thanks for listening to Double Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. The music is a medley of jigs, eavesdroppers, both meat and drink, and Off We Go by Great Big C from their self-titled debut album. Find this and other songs by Great Big C at music.podshow.com. This has been a presentation from Durandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.solarclipper.com. Music